All right, it's time to start. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to Acts 23, Acts chapter 23. You guys are going to sit back there. I'll just come to you. Scoop this podium up a little bit. Acts chapter 23, and we're going to finish off that chapter tonight, Lord willing. Interesting stuff going on in Paul's life as he's in Jerusalem. Who can give me a little bit of uh, context as to what we were talking about last week? What was Paul up to in Acts 23 last week? In Jerusalem doing what? Okay, yeah. Causing a ruckus by doing what? <laughs> yeah, he had the gospel message with him. He went into what kind of a building back in chapter 21? <laughs> Where would he go when he would go to cities? Synagogue. Yeah, synagogues and the temple. He specifically went to a temple in Acts 21. The temple in Jerusalem. Okay, which is kind of like, uh, I guess around here, going to the temple in Provo. Like, really important. <laughs> right? It's, he's in the capital. He's in the heart of it. Um, and he uh, stirs up the crowd with the gospel. And what's the dynamic? What two groups of people are binding Paul and wanting to persecute Paul? Okay, so yeah, well that's true. So within the Jews, you have Sadducees and Pharisees, but outside the Jews, who else? Romans, yeah. So you got the Roman government. So yeah, you were right. You're right, Jerry. I should have been more clear. The Romans and the Jews. And then, yeah, within the Jews, there were Pharisees and Sadducees, and Paul got them to oppose one another at the beginning of chapter 23. And uh, he was taken back by the Roman tribune, the commander of the, uh, the Roman army there. And, uh, and we left off with verse 15, but um, we see, let's back up to verse 10. Paul caused this dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and uh, the tribune came, that guy came and got his soldiers, and they took Paul away and put him in the barracks. So they got Paul into a safe, safe space. And the Jews had made a plot. There were some Jewish men who got together, over 40 of them. And what did they agree to do? Whack him. Kill Paul, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, whack him. The mob, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was the, the Gaudis and whatever their names are. Yeah. And yeah, they took an oath not to eat or drink um, until Paul was killed, okay? So we're going to pick it up. We can just go ahead and pick it up in verse 12 and read through verse... Uh, 16. But before we do that, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again so much for this evening and thank you for the fellowship. Thank you for your word that we can look into this historical record of how you built your church in the first century. And we thank you for the lives of these men, how you use them, and how you show us uh, your glory, your strength, and uh, your uh, faithfulness to do as you said, and that is to build your church. Lord, we ask that you would give us great insight into your word tonight, that we would be stimulated in our thinking, that we would acquire more boldness for the gospel, that we would serve you and honor you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, verses 12 to 16. Who would like to read that for us? 23. Acts 23, verses 12 to 16. Who's got it? Jim, thanks. 
<clears throat> and when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there was more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. All right. So do you remember last week what I, what I told you these Jews wanted to do? These men wanted to do what? Eat. They wanted to eat. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you say, oh, they wanted to kill Paul. Well, no, they wanted to eat again, which means they had to kill Paul. Uh, they come together, and it says conspiracy in some translations. Uh, perhaps you have an adventurous translation that says something about a collusion. Uh, but they came together, devised a secret plan to get Paul dead. They went. Uh, <clears throat> they wanted to tell the commander, "Hey, send Paul down, and uh, and we're going to determine his case more exactly." The ESV says in verse 15, "We're going to really run through the details and really find out what was going on in Paul's life." That was the uh, guise that they were going to be under. And then, as he was on his way, they were just going to kill him. That was their plan. And more than 40, it says. So. A lot of guys really wanted Paul dead. Andy. So these are religious Jews. They're finding themselves on their note. Are they finding themselves on their note to God? <laughs> yeah, well, you know what's interesting? There are religious undertones to this, yeah. To have a, an oath that you agree on that includes fasting is a religious type of oath. Yeah. I mean, they're going to St. Peter, right? Yeah, and yeah, you notice where it says, um, let's see. 14, they came to chief That's it, yep. Chief priests and elders were involved. So they, were all, they weren't afraid to tell them what was going yes. on. <laughs> so imagine how deep the corruption must have been in that religion at that time. That it was like, yeah, that's, that sounds like a good thing to do. Uh, make a binding pact to not eat until we kill a guy. Wow. Um, so crazy. And they're lying, of course, too. I mean, if you're planning to murder somebody, what's lying? So, you know, we're going to lie and say, we're going to go through his details, go, to the, go through the details again. Yeah, right. All just one big lie. And, uh, and then you have this new character come onto the scene. Verse 16, Paul's nephew. Isn't that interesting? Paul's nephew comes along to intercede in the whole ordeal. And so let's read about what, uh, <clears throat> how the Lord used him. And let's start in verse 16 again, and someone read 16 to 22. Who can read that for us? 16 to 22. Who's got it? But the son of Paul's sister heard their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Leave this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to me. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to leave this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately, what is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council 
as though they were going to inquire something somewhat more thoroughly about them. So do not listen to them, for more than forty of them were lying in wait for him, who have found themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, Tell no one that you have notified me of these things. All right. Well, let's answer a few questions. I've got six questions here that we can consider. Uh, the first is, uh, perhaps on the surface simple, but I want you to think deeply. Who is this young man? Uh, what's the very basic detail we're given in verse 16? This young man is? Yeah, Paul's nephew. Okay. Um, but what can we infer from this text about his life? What other details can we infer? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Paul had a sister. Okay, yeah, true. Uh, his mother was Paul's sister. Good. Uh, what else? Uh, he was converted. Yes. Well, he's, yeah, seems like somebody who uh, at least had Paul's best intentions in mind. Yeah. Right. So um, it seems like he loved Paul. Paul is the one who who writes in uh, Philippians, "I've suffered the loss of all things." Well, apparently. All things didn't include all of his family relationships. There's family members who loved him, cared for him. He had a nephew that was willing to look out for him. What else can we infer about this young man? And actually, I mean, it's not really an inference, it's a fact. What, what, did, what do we know about this young man according to just verse 12? Or just verse 16, rather. Okay. He could have reacted in a heated moment. Right, yeah. So, so kind of back up. Where, where would he have been when he would have said that? He was somewhere where he could have overheard. There you go. He was, yeah, he was mingling with those guys, apparently. Now, we don't know if that means he was a mole, like he was a spy, you know, or um, what that means, but he heard of that news quickly. It wasn't like through the grapevine. He apparently heard this it seems firsthand and uh, then he went directly to the barracks to tell Paul so when you start putting all those things together you get a fuller picture of what's going on it's pretty interesting isn't it uh, how old was he what do you guys think how old when you hear nephew are you thinking like a six-year-old <laughs> well what do you have in your mind 17 okay that's the tribune took him by the hand so I picture a little yeah. boy but I don't know. Yeah, we read, uh, and that, that was my first thought when I read through it too. He grabbed him by the hand and we think, okay, that means he's down here and so, you know, he's being real nice with him. But uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, Age-wise, I mean, unless there's a big gap between Paul and his sister, that wouldn't, wouldn't make a ton of sense. Um, but also, it seems as though because he was hearing this information so quickly, he was involved as an older Jewish male in the scuttlebutt of the day. And... Uh, there are two options, basically. One, he was in Jerusalem because that's where he lived. Perhaps his mom and dad lived in Jerusalem and he was there and he was mingling with those people. But it seems more likely that he was in Jerusalem for school. Part of Paul's testimony is that he studied under Gamaliel and he studied in Jerusalem. Paul went from Tarsus to Jerusalem to study. This nephew being in the same family, probably part of the same traditions, he's from the same tribe, it's likely he was in Jerusalem to study also. So we don't know how old he was, but it's likely he was older. 
Okay, he wasn't a little boy. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't a lad. <laughs> but probably older. Yeah, yeah, quite possible. It could be you know it could be by the hand, but it could be you know saying it could be by the arm. As I you know if I was going to talk to you, I might be yeah. driving your arm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and really, what what that phrase teaches us was more of the Tribune's attitude toward the nephew that he was gentle and open with him, um, and wasn't someone who was opposing him in any way. Okay, um, how did this nephew get through? Are you, when you read this, are you thinking, how did he just like go to Paul and then bang go to <laughs> go to the Tribune like? It seems as though Paul is in jail, and we kind of think about in our setting today, if you wanted to go talk to someone in prison, there are hoops to jump through, and then to go talk to like the guy who oversees the prison, that would be a chore, right? What do you guys think? How, how did that all work? Very easily. <laughs> it was easy, yeah. yeah. It doesn't, he didn't have any resistance. Andy? He was a Roman citizen and had rights to do That's it. He's a Roman citizen. Yeah, so Paul being a Roman citizen, nephew being a Roman citizen, you've kind of got cred going on there. Um, but another element to all this is that it doesn't seem as though Paul was in strict confinement at all. Uh, the commander will say later in this chapter that there was no capital offense that Paul had committed. So he wasn't in a strict confinement, but he was in the barracks. It could have been really relaxed, actually. He was just under their supervision. It's not like he was there, you know, behind bars, and they would slip him a piece of bread, you know, that sort of thing. He was probably much more laid back than that. So uh, you kind of have to have that in your mind, too, as you think through the text. Um, this is probably, uh, is it Antonio Fortress, where they kept the, the Roman guards tight? Yeah, I wouldn't but know. I'd have to do some There was a research. fortress that right on the north wall of the temple grounds. Mm-hmm. Like named after Mark Antony or something, maybe? Maybe, I don't know what Because this would have, wouldn't have been long after that. But anyway, there was, was a fortress there where they were housed, and I assume that's the barracks. Okay, them. yeah. And they just, that's where they slept, stayed. Mm -hmm. And I assume Paul was in there with the soldiers. Yeah, not necessarily in the temple. Not necessarily chained or, yeah. or anything. Yeah, very likely. Yes. Under their protection, so he was there. Yeah, so, so it's, it's not like the situation in Philippi. You remember the Philippian jailer, uh, that whole situation? Not like that at all. A lot more laid back and obviously very Jewish uh, instead of a uh, different culture. Why did the commander or the tribune, depending on your translation, believe the nephew, do you think? We've already answered this a little bit perhaps, but you, you see he, he didn't like argue with him. It was just like, oh, that's what's going on. Why, why do you think he believed the nephew? <laughs> and he thinks something's funny. <laughs> well, like, they had to go out and rescue him from being torn apart by a mob. Mm -hmm. So I think he's like going, yeah, there's some people that don't like this guy and they want to, they want to whack him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it wasn't an unbelievable claim at all, right? It was a very credible claim. Um, and again, with the young man being someone who likely was from their inner circle, hearing that information firsthand, and being Roman, having the credibility that he has, um, 
yeah, it, the commander seemed to put all the all the pieces together and say, yeah, that that seems to be true. Steve, could um, could this group of forty? They're laying in wait to kill more them. than forty. More than forty. Could they know who this nephew is, being the son of the the mother who is a sister of Paul? Yeah, could be. And yeah. thinking that, hey, we got him. It's possible. Yeah, we don't. I don't think the text says in any way that they knew that he was Paul's nephew. Um, but it, yeah, it, it could be. We just don't know. Yeah, we don't know what they knew. Hundred percent. Because remember, as he's going here into the tribune, um, he's not dealing with a Jewish man. Right? He's dealing with the Roman. So, um, yeah, we just don't know. They may not be Paul's sister. She would have had a different name. Mm -hmm. They may not. Have, or she married somebody. I assume. Yeah, it's just it's just hard to know what they knew of each other's backgrounds. So, so yep. Yeah. Um, fifth question. Why did the commander care? Why did the commander care if they killed Paul or not? Just to refresh your memory on, on this. Okay, so what? Right? What what's the big deal? Supposed to anyway. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the Tribune could have gotten. He would have had to answer for Paul. Yeah. If, something happened. if you're a Roman commander and you're in charge of watching someone and he gets killed on your watch, yeah. what happens to you? Yeah. So this guy had a lot of reason to really protect Paul, didn't he? <laughs> and to do his job well. I think um, he'd be glad to take him out of town. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Good. Yeah. Well, you remember. Um, you remember the Philippian jailer, right? What was he about to do? Yeah, that's right. That's how serious it was for watching these guys. Um, and, uh, and his, yeah, his life was on the line, just as much as Paul's was. And just the previous chapter there, in 22, they're going to flog him. Mm-hmm. He finds out. Like, oh, they're going to beat him. Yes, and remember that point. That comes up later in this chapter. Um, okay, my last question. Why did all of this happen this way? Because God wanted it to. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, that's it. What did we learn last week in verse 12? The Lord stood by Paul and said he's going to go where? He's going to Rome. So this is God's providence, isn't it? God working all these things together to accomplish his purposes. And God uses means to accomplish his ends, his purposes. His end, at least in the context of this promise, is that Paul was going to get to Rome. To fulfill that promise, God is using means. He's putting things together to accomplish that ends, end. And all too often, we look at the means in our lives that God uses, and we see it as evidence for our 
libertarian freedom. And we see, look, see, I can go here and do this, and I can go there and do that. And here we're getting insight, uh, as we do in many places in the Bible, how God is orchestrating things together for his purposes and achieving his purposes through uh, his own means. Uh, Matthew Henry has said, God has instruments for every work. And that's what we see here. God is using instruments to accomplish his work. So uh, I, I thought that was important to point out too, is that this is all happening this way because God's doing what God wants to do. Andy, did you have a thought a moment ago? I did, but it was kind of... Right. We got time. There's that spice. It just no, it just occurred to me that um, the commander of the Romans, when he rescued Paul, and before he found out he was a Roman citizen, he's like, We're gonna examine him by scourging. Yes. We're gonna beat the truth out of him. Yeah. So it wasn't like the Romans were opposed to any kind of using force on people, especially if they were on Romans. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Yep. Strong-armed. Um, but in light of all the things that God was doing, um, you can imagine Paul had to be handling himself with the utmost confidence, knowing that he was going to make it to Rome, right? The Lord had said, you're going to make it to Rome, and through all these things, he's got a nephew that runs to him and says, hey, these Jews are, there are over 40 of them. They're going to kill you. They have this intricate plan. They're going to kill you. And Paul had just heard from the Lord, you're going to Rome. Paul says, oh, no, go tell the commander. It doesn't matter to me, because I'm going to Rome. <laughs> They're going to fail. And Paul didn't know exactly how they were going to fail. He gets to learn it by living it. But he had to have confidence, didn't he, uh, in the Lord's promise. Pretty cool stuff. So then uh, from there, Paul ends up being moved to Caesarea. So let's uh, finish out the chapter. Verses 23 to the end. Would someone read that section? It's a bit larger of a section. 23 to 35, about Paul being moved to Caesarea. Who can read that for us? Thanks, Jim. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Sicilia, 
He said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Harris. Praetorium. Praetorium, yeah. That's a word we don't use. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. Um, Paul gets sent to Caesarea with how many men, do you think? Yeah, almost 500 men. Right around 500 men. So, pretty important that Paul stays alive, huh? <laughs> How's Paul going to get out of this impossible situation? Well, how about you give him 500 guardsmen and let him go? Uh, that's what he got. That's how the Lord provided. Hundreds of men protecting, way more than the 40-plus who were lying in wait. Um, he was guarded, uh, you know, uh, really securely there. Caesarea, just so you know, is about 60 miles away from Jerusalem. So a 60-mile journey they left in the, uh, what does it say, third hour? which is about 9 o'clock in the evening. So after sunset, uh, you know, I'm sure security was the big reason there in, in darkness, but it's also hot. Uh, it's cooler to make a trip like that. And so they leave after sunset, and they're on their way, and they go to that city, uh, Antipatris, which has some neat historical information, but I just didn't think it was relevant enough to learn and then teach to you. So uh, they make it to the city, and that was about 40 miles outside of Jerusalem. So they went basically two-thirds of the way, and then uh, they were, he was pretty much safe at that point. But hundreds, hundreds of men guarding this one prisoner being transferred. That, can you imagine how ridiculous that had to look? <laughs> it just looks so weird. They got 40 against hundreds. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And it doesn't say, of course, if the two camps crossed paths at all, if anybody saw anybody else. Uh, but if they did, those who were lying in wait, if they happened to see them, uh, what could they do? They couldn't do anything. And it was uh, men on horseback, and it also says uh, the type of men that were with them were, let's see, I, I, once again, I prepared with the NASB, and here I am using an ESV, so perhaps it's a, a different word that's used. But spearmen was the word I'm looking for. What verse is that? 23. Oh, it's way back there. 23. Um, yeah, it says spearmen in the ESV too. So that word, that's the only time that that word's used in the New Testament. Interesting word. We don't know fully what that means. Um, but they were men who were equipped with weapons who were able to fulfill that duty. So interesting word there. Okay. Um, I want to talk for a moment about the relationship between this commander and Felix, uh, who they are. We learned the commander's name for the first time. Did you catch it? Man, hope he didn't go to public school with a name like that. He got a lot of wedgies on the playground. Claudius, uh, Claudius Lysias, what, what a name. He, uh, the name is Greek, so he's a man of Greek birth, and he's, of course, the Roman commander there. And Felix, what do we know about this guy, Felix. We're going to learn a lot about him next chapter, but what do we know now? Say again. Okay, yeah, he's a guy in charge. He, he governs, yeah. Uh, of what region? What does he govern? Do you know? Judea. Judea. So the greater area. Um, not just one city, but uh, a large area, Judea. This guy, Felix, he married three women right in succession, all from royal families. So he, he was like a, a gold digger in that direction. Um, one of them was Agrippa's sister. You know Herod Agrippa? He married her sister. 
And so he had three wives. Uh, he was one king with three queens, is what they would say in those days. And he was a wicked man, uh, as a lot of those rulers were back then. Felix was a wicked dude. We're going to learn about um, Agrippa's sister in the next chapter. It's uh, 24, 24. Acts 24, verse 24 mentions her. Her name is Drusilla. Another one of those names where I hope she was homeschooled because, wow, uh, Drusilla. So Felix uh, was a mean dude, and Paul gets to tangle with him in the next chapter. But uh, Paul, or uh, Luke rather, preserves what this letter said. And we've got to ask ourselves, how does Luke know what the letter said? Does Luke know what the letter said? It's an interesting question. We don't know how this information was acquired, but notice the phrasing in verse 25. Luke is sure to tell us that it was a letter to this effect or a letter having this form. So it's likely that this isn't verbatim. It's just what Luke had heard. Um, it, it would be very strange for Luke to have a copy of that letter word for word. And so this is what um, Luke had acquired in his research. And he's researching this for who? Do you remember this old book of Acts? Why was it written? Yeah. Theophilus, yeah. Luke's writing, he's doing research for this guy named Theophilus. And remember, uh, he's most excellent Theophilus, just like here in verse 26, Felix is most excellent. That's, of course, a phrase that you use for people with wealth and dignity and all that stuff that we don't have. Um, you address people that way. So uh, Felix, Theophilus, they're in that category of rich and dignified people. It could be. It could be. Yep, it's possible. Um, yeah, and it's possible Paul was there. Um, yeah, we just don't know. We don't know how the letter's contents spilled out, but that's certainly one way. Can you find in that letter any inconsistencies or lies or half-truths? <laughs> okay, yeah, good. Uh, Felix was not most excellent. Good. What else? Yeah, what's up with that? What's wrong with uh, yeah. what's wrong with that phrasing? He was the one who ordered him to be flogged. Yeah, he he left out the part after we uh, were ready to beat the snot out of him. Then uh, yeah, we sent him to the Jews. He left that whole part out. It was oh, the Jews got a hold of him and they were getting ready to kill him. And then I came in, having learned he was a Roman, and I delivered him out of the hands of the Jews. Now, of course, there is a sliver of truth to that. He was getting ready to be torn apart by the Jews and he got him out of there and into the barracks. But that was only to watch his own hide because if Paul was to die, we already said he would die. And he left out that whole part at the end of chapter 22 that Mark taught a couple weeks ago that here he is, you know, ready to just beat him to a pulp. He didn't mention any of that. Uh, so, interesting the information he withholds and how he frames the whole story there. Uh, well, what do you expect, though, right? It doesn't mention the plot for them to try to assassinate him. Right, yeah. Even though he took 470 soldiers by night. Yes. Like, yeah, I, we came this close to messing it all up, Felix. He didn't mention that. Yeah. Uh, it, it almost got really ugly. Didn't say any of that. But he puts all the blame back on, uh, back on the Jews. Um, he just says that there was a plot, right? Yeah, just a plot. Yep. 
Now, what's interesting here, if you can remember back in 21, and you don't have to remember, we'll just look at it. 21, uh, verse 27. This is where all this started. Paul's whole ordeal that he's in right now started in chapter 21. And it started in verse 27. It says, uh, this, you know, Paul was taking, was observing days of purification under an oath. It says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. And pay attention, verse 28, they cried out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. That's what started this whole ordeal, is they accused Paul of a few things, but one of those things being uh, violating the sanctity of the temple. As the story went on, any, in all of Paul's interactions with the Roman commander and all the interactions that took place there, it didn't get brought up that he defiled the temple. And you see in his letter to Felix in verse 29, the uh, Claudius guy, the commander, he says, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Now, it was my understanding from what I studied that if you were to defile the temple, that was a capital offense and that that was going to be enforced on the offender, that you were to be put to death for defiling the temple. And I don't know exactly what exactly is going on here, but it seems like the commander just legitimately didn't know that he was accused of that, that the Lord perhaps kept that from entering into the conversation with the Romans or, or what it may be, but it didn't get brought up. I didn't enforce that, did they? Well, that's... I, I didn't... Yeah, Rome actually did. They were enforced it. Yeah. They had signs posted in the temple that said, if you break these rules, then Rome will quit you death. Yeah, I didn't get into a deep dive of it, but that was my understanding, is that that was one of the things that the Romans would enforce. That was when Jesus was tried. All the trials... Yeah, I don't know if it had to do with defiling the temple specifically, though. Yeah, we don't care about your law. Yes. Right. Because the disputes about the law were just they didn't care, and you see that in verse that verse twenty nine there. He was charged about questions of their law. Well, what do they care, right? But when it came to trespassing or defiling, you know, what was the the Jews' temple? Um, that was enforced. It seems like. And what's interesting, as the story continues, you have in verse 21, they're charging him with defiling the temple. It doesn't come up again at all until verse or chapter 24. So this is Paul's before Felix, and Tyler's going to get into this next week. Paul's there before Felix. The Jews finally come, and look what they say in verse 6. He even tried to profane the temple. So the accusations that they're bringing 
before Felix include he profaned the temple. Uh, but it didn't come up when Paul was in the Roman commander's custody. So I just thought that was kind of interesting, uh, an interesting factoid there, that it just didn't come up. So God's providence, I think, is what's going on there. That says he tried to profane the temple. Yeah. Well, Tyler will teach us more next week. <laughs> I would guess most of this happened in the court of the Gentiles, which is the largest area in the temple walls. Okay, go back to point one. The accusation was that he took the Greek into a temple. Right. They would be able to allow it. But they're allowed to go into the court of the But he did. Go past there. That's where they have the signs yeah. posted saying, anybody who is not Jewish professor will be inhabited. Yeah. Uh, because they... They saw him with Trophimus, the Ephesian guy, and they saw him in the city with him or maybe even in the Gentile court. And they said, well, he took him into the Jews' only place, um, which he didn't do, but that's what they accused him of. Andy? Well, so we're talking about here that this is 20 years after Christ's Oh, Oh, thank you for bringing that up. I messed up multiple times last week on my timeline. Um, the timeline got messy in my head. I told you I have a New Testament timeline in my office. It goes vertically, and I look at that when I needed to know dates, and I didn't have that last week in front of me. <laughs> so I think I said multiple times it was like 12 years or something. I don't know what I said. But yes, this was roughly um, 25 years after the time of Christ and about 22, 23 years um, after Paul was converted. So, so this is basically 58 AD-ish, roughly? Yep. Okay, so... The thing that keeps occurring in my mind is you've got the Romans who are trying to govern Judea. You've got the Jews that live there in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin and the chief priests are sort of working in cahoots with the Romans to, to a degree peace, yeah. right? And manipulate Pilate to have Jesus crucified. This is 58 AD. It's only 12 years later that Jerusalem is destroyed by a Roman army invading because the Jews basically were rebelling as, as a whole. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's not, in other words, tensions are high. Yeah. <laughs> and happen yeah. for gener generations. Yeah. Basically. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, it wasn't exactly a place of peace and prosperity. Right. Yeah. The Jews were never, goodwill. <laughs> never considered friends of Rome. They were always hostile. There was individuals, Pilate was one, mm -hmm. most of the governors actually mm -hmm. had Roman friends like with the, the, the centurions and commanders and, and different people. But uh, most, most all the high priests and the governors <clears throat> were kind of friends. Mm -hmm. They in one, one way or another. Yeah. Yes, and we've seen that uh, repeat itself in a variety of cultures, haven't we? Where the guys at the top are all kind of in cahoots with one another and the people are tribal against each other. <laughs> yeah, it kind of sounds like what's going on in America today. Uh, so, Okay, don't get me started on that tangent. Um, Cilicia was mentioned. <clears throat> um, let's see, where was that? In um, 34. 34. Good. When he learned that he was from Cilicia... 
Uh, all that you need to know there is that's where Tarsus is located. The city where Paul's from is in the region of Cilicia, which of course is a uh, uh, Roman, Roman province that uh, Paul, Roman by birth. And uh, then he was sent to Herod's Praetorium. Does anybody have a different word for Praetorium at the end of the chapter there? Different palace. translation? Say house? Palace. Oh, palace. Okay, good. Uh huh. Judgment Hall. Judgment Hall. Yeah, good. The Judgment Hall is uh, more of a literal translation, but it was a very gaudy place. It was like a palace. It was a very nice, nice place. And so that's where. Uh, Paul ends up um, named after Herod. He's the one who had it built. There were many Herods. There was one of them. And, uh, and so Paul is in an even, even nicer place than those barracks he was in before. Okay, But he's getting ready to enter into pretty serious interaction with Felix. Uh, it's a good chapter. Next chapter. Okay. Any thoughts or questions on what we just covered? Mark. Yeah. Paul, Paul did what he did because he thought he was honoring God. Yes. And I, you know, making these oaths is, you know, like we already brought up, this was an oath to God. These were men thinking they were doing, you know, often sinful in your, you know, because they were trying to lie to get them to kill me. Right. But, you know, these were, you know, often I, I just was thinking about more and more why would even the oaths and all that stuff be Very zealous um, to get rid of Paul because of the uh, damage he was doing to promoting Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, these guys knew their Old Testament, right? You read through the Old Testament and how the Jews were to wage war on their enemies (laughs) Uh, and when God told them to. Uh, But they're zealous for their people, their countrymen, in protecting uh, what they believed was the you know, one true nation of God. He wouldn't open this up to the Gentiles. It was all about Israel, and Israel had to protect itself, and that was their mindset. I wanted to take all this into a conversation. We've got about 15 minutes left. Um, as you think through what Paul went through here, this whole ordeal, where he's being sent around causing this big mess. I mean, it's just a hassle. Everything's a hassle uh, that he's caused. And if, if you can put yourself in Paul's spot and, and contextualize it if you want, you know, if you were imagining yourself going to the barracks and then being conspired against by Jews and then going to Herod's palace, that's not really what you would find yourself in. But consider yourself causing a ruckus for the gospel in your context. Okay, Consider that. Um, I don't know about you, but I know that sometimes I'm tempted to feel like it's not worth the hassle when it comes to that sort of stuff. 
where I come from a, a background of it's valued, it's uh, seen as virtuous to not cause trouble, <laughs> to, to not make a mess, and to mind your own business, and to, you know, let them do their thing, and you just don't, don't make a hassle for anyone else. And, if, and I was thinking through this, like if I was in a similar situation, I think I would be tempted to be sitting there in those barracks, and, and if I wasn't visited by Jesus, you know, uh, the, the visitation of Jesus really changes the whole storyline. But, um, but it, that wouldn't happen with me, uh, presumably. And, you know, uh, as I'm sitting there, I'd just be thinking, what am I doing? Because Christianity wasn't like big, you know, it didn't have a lot of influence like it does today, especially in our country. It wasn't favored, and you're just sitting there like, why am I doing this? Is this even worth the hassle? to be acting this way. And, and I would start thinking, am I harming the reputation of Christ by doing this? By getting myself thrown in prison? Can I find another method that's more peaceable? <laughs> Those are the things that I would start to think. And I just want to throw that out there and see if you guys relate to that, if, you, if there are any thoughts that you might have with that. Stacy. In situations that I have experienced sometimes, I convince myself I was doing such a godly thing, it would be much easier. Mm, mm. <laughs> but really, Satan's going to try and stop it every turn. So. Yeah. yeah, there's going to be you a pressure. Try pressure. to talk yourself out of it, I think, regardless when it gets hard. Yeah. I think one thing that Paul did have to inform, but we'll see in the next chapter in First Corinthians, is that he didn't have a wife. He didn't have a family. So, <laughs> that's what I do. Yeah. He's going to. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Paul had a choice at this point. What he could have said, hey, let me go. He didn't kill him. Yeah. And which they may not let him go, but like I said, the commander said, no, if I let you go, they're going to kill you and I'll be blamed for it. Well, remember, he could have not gone to Jerusalem, too. He could have not gone to Jerusalem. Yeah. And could have seeked methods that were less offensive, right? Like I said, at this point, God's taking it out of Paul's hands. I mean, Paul's going wrong whether he wants to or not. I don't think there's any way to get at it. Well, he's actually sort of the precursor or prototype of, of later Christians. Luther comes to mind, uh, Jan Hus, um, and that was. <laughs> um, but I mean, these were men that they, you know, they, they read scripture, and the scripture was being perverted and destroyed in front of their very eyes by the church that they were actually serving. And, um, you know, in Paul's context, you know, the Jewish people had perverted God's law mm -hmm. with with the way that the Sanhedrin was teaching and the way that the, the priests were teaching. And it, you know, I'm guessing here that God makes different people and I think it just burned in their souls. I really do. Yeah. Right? Because why else would they face that kind of... They, it's not like they went in going, well, 
I'm going to say this, and you know, Sanhedrin's going to be like, oh, well, that's nuts. And they're just going to blow it off. He knew that they would come after him. It wasn't like he, he was unaware. Yeah. And, you know, it's the same with Luther, it's the same with Jesus, and they, they knew. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking of all the ways that I'd be failing mentally uh, through the whole ordeal. Like, not being able to see the big picture, I'd be thinking, this isn't working. <laughs> uh, this, I, I'm actually causing the church to take steps backwards instead of advancing the kingdom, as I'm called to do. Um, but yeah, it, it's, I'm sure there are people that who are gifted and called specifically in certain ways who just their minds probably don't even go there. And, and perhaps in certain situations, my mind wouldn't go there in other people's work. It's all people's work. Jesus, right? yeah. <laughs> like you said, yeah. it changes the whole, it does. The whole thing. <laughs> but I mean, uh, and, and to your point, Tyler, uh, yeah, Paul wasn't married. We don't know if he was ever married. We don't know what the story was there. Um, yeah, well, there's the whole... He was to be a Pharisee that was part of... And to be involved in the Sanhedrin. Uh, but Peter was married. Um, and Peter, of course, suffered many things. We read about the beginning part of the book of Acts, and yeah, that would be a burden too. It'd be like, I'm, fa- I'm not just failing as a Christian, I'm failing as a dad, I'm failing as a father, I'm in jail. There's so many other ways. I could have just put a sign in my yard that said, vote for Jesus, and that would have been fine, right? <laughs> but instead, I'm in jail. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. That, that's just kind of where my heart was as I was wrapping up the study. Any other thoughts? We still got time. I saw these things to play out in real time, where not to minimize what we read by any measure, but they walked with Jesus and they watched all of this unfold. Um, you know, I think a lot of it maybe didn't have so much to do with human flesh, which God driving them. Yeah. They needed extreme conversions radical, loud stuff that was going to grow the church. Yeah, it reminds me of um, the way John opened 1 John, the letter of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Yeah, there was a degree of passion there. Well, we need to question our hearts when we start to feel like... um, when we start to feel like being passionate for Jesus is wrong, if we ever start to feel that way, based on our circumstances, if we look around and say, ah, I shouldn't have been so fired up for Jesus. <laughs> you question ourselves? Now, there's obviously a degree where you can take your faith and package it in a very foolish way. Notice in Paul's relationship with the government, he wasn't attacking the government, anything that he did. He also wasn't trying to partner with the government. He was just being a Christian. He was just evangelizing. Um, and so if we ever start thinking, ah, I shouldn't have been involving myself in all that biblical evangelism, that, put, that really got me in the hot water. Next time I won't do that. That's bad. Uh, that's, that's bad. And so we can look at the circumstances and say, from a worldly perspective, well, that was stupid. But we need to question our hearts and consider what God is doing in the bigger picture as he's building his church. And... I mean, who would have thought in these circumstances that God is building his church? That The world wouldn't have thought that as they're looking at this whole thing, but that's exactly what God is doing. Mm-hmm. Mark? I was just thinking as far as the different 
characters and different people. I mean, you've got Paul and you've got Barnabas, and you've got really it looks like whole opposite people that God used both. I mean, obviously, you know more about what went on with Paul, but Paul and Barnabas started as the leader, you right? Know, in their first missionary field, and Paul, yeah, he was Zeus, right? <laughs> gradually came, you know, to, to be a leader. And Paul's known as, you know, son of encouragement, you know, Barnabas, son of encouragement. So each person is given a different type gift. And, you know, if we were all Paul, it would not be a yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, each person God creates. Um, and the way I look at it is everyone is given the um, commission to yes. spread the gospel. Some, you know, some do it much more uh, out in the open and, and, and combatively. Yeah. And some do it, you know, like the man that led the young the Lord in the Sunday school class, mm-hmm. right? In, in, but we have the promise from Jesus, and we have the promise in the New Testament. One of the first verses I ever memorized, 1 Timothy 2, 4 or 5, um, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Um, we have that promise, and that the degree of persecution varies, right? Um, but some of you know what it's like to be rejected by family to be persecuted to a degree by your family. Um, and then there are others, we have brothers and sisters around the world who are very intimate with being persecuted by a government. Uh, they have intimate knowledge of that. And so we can't ever look at our situations that are various forms of persecution and say, that means I shouldn't have done what I did. That's our promise for doing what you're supposed to do, <laughs> is to experience some level of persecution. Listen. Just read a couple of missionary biographies lately, and as I'm reading them, I keep thinking like, like just what a miracle it is that they even exist because it's like this person should have died like the first time they went out. Like they, this one woman who's younger than me just went by herself to China, just found her way to China, and it just it seems so impossible. Walker, you ready? <laughs> um, but it and she lived to tell, and a book was written about it. Like people have done impossible things for the kingdom of God. So not that like we should be stupid, but I think there is like when you trust God and step out in faith, there are people who have done that and have yes. seen tremendous fruit. And if they hadn't done that, uh, you know, and so it's like like with Paul and with these other missionaries, they, they could have died the second they stepped out. Like they could have, but they didn't because God, it wasn't God's will for them to die. In the uh, Corinthians thought, Paul was foolish. Uh, Paul wrote to them in 2 Corinthians 5, For if we are out of our minds, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. <laughs> they, were, they were radical in their mission for Christ. And some people will look at it and say, You're crazy. <laughs> but if God's called, called you to that, He's called you to that. Um, now, if you've got... A multitude of wise counselors in your life saying you're crazy you need to calm down <laughs> then you might need to listen if they've got biblical backing for what they're saying but if God has, has called you to um, just really go out and do some wild stuff then that's what you need to do and Peter and James after they were blocked by the Sanhedrin and uh, Acts 34 um, they well, they, they went out, and they heard, they're like, 
Yeah. We just got whipped because we were sharing Jesus, you know, and I mean, it's... Acts 5. Acts 5, thank you. Yeah. You know, but it's, in other words, you can rejoice with a clean conscience if you are being persecuted because you love the Lord and yeah. you're sharing the Lord with others. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Char? I just, things I've read and, and heard lately makes me think, I mean, you don't have to say much. You can just say one biblical thing and you're, you're bad. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. Canceled. You're, yeah, you're, you know, and so we should really pray that we'll be strong. Yes. And compromising will be taken over. And I, I'm reading a book about Islam and in America, other countries, and the church compromised, and mm. you have to be careful what you say, which is happening here, and pretty soon. Mm. Need to pray that our backs don't bend in the lion's den, right? Mm. Jim? Paul wasn't always single-minded or, or headstrong, because he tells us that uh, on his, his second or third missionary journey that the, the spirit wouldn't allow him to right. go to this town or that town. And also, at times he went in and talked to the synagogue and they'd reject him. He said, Fine, yeah. I'll go over here. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, he wasn't always just yeah. straight ahead, non stop. He, he turned sometimes. See, I, I think he considered the cost sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, that could be. Um, yeah. When do you. Shake the dust off your feet for a certain city. That's going to be different for every one of us, I think. I talked about uh, casting pearls before swine before and how our levels of tolerance are just different on that. At what point do you you decide, you're a swine, no longer casting my pearls before you? For some people, that's one conversation. (laughs) For other people, it's like a thousand conversations, and you look at them like, how do you still have the patience for this person? (laughs) And they they do it, and, and that's okay. It's okay. Steve. When looking at the calendar, uh, Voice of the Martyrs, uh, places in India and Pakistan, South East Asia, where you profess a, a confess Christ, profess a belief in Christ, it'd be enough to get you killed. Yeah. And in the government, or with the religions in India and the government of India, they, they're trying to outlaw Christianity altogether. And so you could be reading a Bible or trying to hold a little church service, and you could be beat up, killed, uh, your home destroyed. Everything that we would think would be so horrible here, it's not happening here, but it's happening there. When I see those people, what they have to put up with just to profess a belief in Christ, it's just amazing. Yeah. And the sacrifices they make to be with God's people, to be in fellowship, to learn, to study. Get Bibles out. You know, you get caught with a Bible, that could be enough to get you killed. Yep. We have lived in a very exceptional time in a very exceptional place. And uh, we still have many exceptions uh, that are very positive. But if we start becoming more normal around here, like the rest of the world throughout all of history, where you get persecuted for preaching Christ, uh, you don't stop preaching Christ, do you? Jim? We supported a missionary in India for the last 20 years, and he had an orphanage there. Actually, there was two of the boys and the girls. But the Indian government was constantly 
Now, he rescued kids from the street, kids that would have been killed, put to death, children, babies, newborns, that would have been put to death, killed, whatever. The government didn't want those kids. They just wanted to shut him down. They would have been fine for the kids to be right back out on the streets, starving and suffering. They just wanted to shut him down because he was a Christian. I mean, and that's, they didn't, it, it, it tore me up because they didn't care about the kids. That's it. It wasn't that he was, it was he was a Christian yeah. raising these kids to be Christian. They'd rather them starve to death on the street. How dare you say someone else is king? <laughs> Jesus isn't king. The state is king. The governor's king. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. That's uh, traditionally been what cultures have experienced. And here we are in America. We haven't had to face that head-on quite yet. So take advantage of every single privilege that you have right now. Look for every opportunity because we have privileges no one else in the world has. We still have them, so let's use them. Okay. Tyler, you want to close us in prayer? Let's pray.